joy. It's an interesting feeling, isn't it? It's kind of difficult to capture. I, I hear when people try to define joy, they often use the word to define the word. Well, you know, joy, it's like joy. Well, yes, and what's that mean? Um, and then I think Christians sometimes feel pressure to like come across with joy. Like, well, do I just put on a smile and fake it till I make it? So let's talk about it. The other day, we met our son and daughter-in-law and their, their kids, our, our grandkids, at the Sheraton Hotel in Seattle to see the um, gingerbread display. And they were there ahead of us. They were waiting in the lobby. And when my three-year-old granddaughter, Imogene, saw me, she smiled, I smiled, and we have, I just yeah, throw my hands in the air. And she came running full steam toward me and jumped into my arms. And it was the most joy-filled, uninhibited, and that's sort of her way, right? <laughs> um, that's her. Um, she jumped into my arms, and we both felt this wonderful sense of connection to each other, um, happy to be together, and a deep joy. We had this embodied sense of well-being and delight. And that is part of the Bible's idea of joy, an almost wild emotion that prompts jumping up and, and down and spinning and dancing from this life bubbling up out of us, leaping into Nona's arms. And juxtaposed with this uninhibited expression of joy, there's a grace-filled, calm delight, a sense of well-being that floods our souls and moves us to worship, and it's kind of deep down. It motivates us to sing or gasp in awe, um, in wonder. And this, too, is part of the Bible's understanding of joy. You know, when I'm looking at a topic like this, I will take, pull up Blue Letter Bible, and I'm telling you my process because you can do this. This is not rocket science. And there's a little search box, so I just put joy in there. And then I read every verse in the Bible that had the word joy in it. And it is a really rich experience. Highly recommend. Um, but one, and, and one thing is certain that, that, you know, there's a gamut of expressions of joy in the Bible. And God feels joy. So the true story of Christmas is for sure filled with joy. The wild down-to-your-feet kind and the calm, delighted, I've just got to savor this option. Both are in this Christmas story. We hear angels proclaim to the shepherds, good tidings of great joy for all people, because Jesus was born. We see wise men from the east overcome by joy when a miracle star guides them to a miracle child, to Jesus. Elderly prayer warriors and prophets, Simeon and Anna, they were in the temple the day that Jesus was dedicated at 40 days old. And they wept for joy, seeing with their own eyes the promised deliverer and Messiah. And joy was desperately needed in the first century. Because God had not spoken through a prophet for 400 years. It's a long time for God to be silent. When they were used to a prophetic word regularly from the prophets to the people. 
the last recorded prophetic word was Malachi. And in Malachi 4, these are the last words the prophet, God speaks through the prophet. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out of the pasture, let out to pasture. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So healing would come, but first the great silence. For 400 years, there was great darkness because God wasn't speaking. The religious leaders had burdened the people with rules upon rules. And because the Roman Empire had invaded and was ruling over them. But there were those who longed for the Messiah, for the promised one to come. The one who would deliver them. And as Isaiah foretold, he would bring good news to the poor. He would comfort the brokenhearted. He would proclaim captives released and prisoners freed. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, the anointing oil of joy instead of mourning, festive garments of praise instead of despair. They will be like great oaks of righteousness that the Lord planted for his own glory. So this is what's prophesied by Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is filled with prophecy about the Messiah, his coming. And again, you know, 700 years before he was born, really detailed um, things that Isaiah prophesies. So there were people like the priest Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, and she was a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron, so both from priestly lines. They trusted God in the darkness. They followed him and believed God would be true to his word. They were oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord. And God started this revolution to turn the world upside right with the first miraculous baby, John the Baptist. Their story, Elizabeth and Zacharias, intersects with Mary's story and her miracle baby, Jesus, in Luke 1, verse 5 to 80. Don't panic, I'm not going to read all 80, all 75 verses, though I'm tempted. Because this text is powerful. And listen, in this Christmas season, there is no better time than to sort of give yourself permission to sit down with the Christmas story and read it. Read it to your grandkids, read it to your kids, read it to yourself. But get in it, because it's powerful stuff. And it's true. So, let's take a look at it. Zacharias, and your, this is Luke 1. Zacharias, your, your text might say, Zachariah. Both are, both are allowed. Um, he was a priest who then his, you know, they drew lots and it was his day to go into the holy place and light the incense and pray. That altar of incense represented the prayers of the people. And while he was doing his job, the angel Gabriel uh, appears and it says in the text on the right side of the altar. So here's my I'm amused by this story because I imagine that Zacharias, I mean, he's doing this very holy work. It's, he's in a place people don't get to go. He's in the, 
the holy, holy place where the altar of incense is. And he's praying, and he's got his eyes closed, and then he opens, and there's Gabriel standing on the right side of the altar. And it says he's, he's terrified. And it seems God is speaking again, because the angel has this message in Luke 1, 13 to 17. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, it's like God picked up right where he left off. Malachi 4, Luke 1, there it is. In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's exactly what we read in Malachi 4. The bridge... Gap, uh, the gap bridged between Malachi and, Z- and Zacharias's present moment. Unfortunately, Zacharias intellectualizes it. He says, how will I know this? How can I be certain this will happen? And Gabriel, again, I'm amused. Gabriel is like, are you kidding me? You opened your eyes and you saw an angel in the holy place. And God, I stand, he says, I stand in the presence of God. Is, oh, there it is. Why don't I just read it? Oh, no. We already read that. Can you go to the next slide? Okay, we already read that part. Um, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He sent me here with this message, and you're going to ask me, how can I be certain? How about this? You can keep your objections to yourself because you're going to be silent for the next nine months. And when you do speak again, you'll call that baby John. Okay, I have to fix this before it causes something. Thank you. We have some tweaking to do on that. Okay. And sure enough... When Zacharias returned home, he and Elizabeth became pregnant after decades of infertility. Decades. She is overwhelmed by the kindness of God, and in Luke 1.25 she says, He, God, he looked on, upon me to take away my disgrace among men. He looked upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So I noticed when I looked at all the verses in the Bible with the word joy, it is often connected to sorrow or suffering. Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 6.10 when he says, Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. And this is, this is just like Elizabeth's joy. She could feel the intensity of the joy because she had known such deep sorrow. The stares, the whispers, the disgrace. Well, if she's as godly as she appears to be, why is she infertile? Because they thought in that time that, that a, a woman who couldn't bear children was bearing the judgment of God. 
either being judged for um, being unfaithful to God or judged for being unfaithful to her spouse. And Elizabeth was neither of those things. And yet her womb was closed. And how ugly we can be in judgment of one another. And she bore that. But God, he saw her. And he planned this great coup for bringing life to a very unlikely place, her old body. He looked upon her. He knew her name. I love how when Gabriel shows up in these scenarios, he uses people's names. Zacharias, you and Elizabeth. Mary. Um, He knew her name. He knew her suffering. He knew the isolating place and nature of it. He saw her. And he took away her disgrace. Can you imagine how freeing that must have been? And then it says she goes into seclusion for pretty much her pregnancy. But um, I wonder what that's about. Like, was she trying to protect herself from germs? Was she worried that, you know, she'd be showing and there might be a mis? What was she, why did she do it? I don't know. Maybe she's just trying to savor every moment. But for whatever reason, she was secluded. And then in Elizabeth's six months month of pregnancy, Gabriel is sent out on another mission to visit a small town girl who is also an oak of righteousness, as well as a virgin who is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, some of your translations might say engaged. And a betrothal is more than engagement. It's, it's contractual. It could only be uh, broken by divorce. And it was this preparation time for families and for, uh, for marriage. So she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. So now I want to look at the idea that, so, so far I've said that joy is connected to sorrow and grief. Now I want to look at joy connected to grace. So can you look uh, at Luke 1, 28 with me? But you can see I forgot my glasses. So I'm trying to figure out where that was. Oh, God bless you, young woman. Whoa, okay. That's a game changer. Um, So this angel comes, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting was this. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And we know that Jesus, his name means God is salvation or God saves. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the highest one will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. So verse 28, the angel says, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, I'm going to get into the weeds on something because it really captured my imagination and sort of changed how I looked at joy. So can you ride this little academic moment with me? Let's pretend we were all scholars in biblical Greek, which I am not. But let's pretend we all are. And we're reading the text in the language of the New Testament, Greek. And, and we see the angel says, Cairo, that's the, that's the word that my translation, the New King James says, rejoice. But a lot of your translations say things like, greetings. And it is a greeting, but it's not like, hello. It's Cairo, it, it means to rejoice, be glad, enjoy uh, wellness and thriving, have joy. So that's the way, that's why she's like, what kind of greeting is this? Uh, rejoice, be thriving and well, be glad, have joy, because you have, what does it say? Because the Lord is with you, highly favored one. So again, if we were reading this in Greek, Cairo is a root word, and other words come out of Cairo. And I'm not saying it like you're supposed to roll your R and have this Cairo. I'm just going to Englishize it. Cairo is a root word. Other words come from it, like this highly favored one, which means one endued with grace or favor or made acceptable or blessed. And then he says in verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay, again, another word that comes from this root word, Cairo. Cairo, Cairo, whatever, and Chiris. Uh, and what's fascinating to me is everywhere in the New Testament where you see the word Chiris, it's translated grace. So I think why this really moved me was because grace, the root system of grace is joy. Does that make sense? The root system of grace is joy. Why does that matter? Well, I feel like it protects me from feeling entitled. When I come to Jesus, I, I'm, not, I'm not getting anything I earned. Grace means I am coming with my broken, repentant heart saying, I can't change myself. I can't heal this selfishness. I can't stop being a jerk. I need I need salvation from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes. Salvation being release from all of this darkness and selfishness inside me. Grace says, I'll give you that. I'll take, I'll take that. Because Jesus paid for that already on the cross for me. So I'm not entitled to anything. I'm enjoying grace. I am receiving it. And sometimes I think we get an entitled attitude. 
especially, you know, if you grew up in church, I mean, I, th- I feel like sometimes we come to church and I'm like, well, tell me something I don't know. Tell me something I haven't heard before. That music better be great, and that pastor better say something interesting. And it's such an entitled mindset, as opposed to, <sighs> shoot, I thought I was going to get through it, as opposed to, how fortunate am I to be with God's people, in God's house, enjoying God's grace, and how can I give it away to somebody else? It's a completely different mindset. And because grace, the root system of grace is joy. Okay. So joy is connected to sorrow. Joy is connected to grace. Joy is also connected to the Holy Spirit and him filling us. Let's look at Luke 138. Uh, Mary said, behold, I'm the maidservant of the Lord. Let it happen to me just like you said. And then Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And here's where the grace is connected to joy. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as I heard the voice of your greeting, it sounded in my ears, and the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of the things that were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then loudly proclaimed that her baby leapt for joy in her womb as she recognized Jesus in Mary's womb. She recognized the promised one from God who rescues people from being lost in selfish darkness and delivers them into the light of love and forgiveness, the God who saves. He had entered the room in Mary's womb. Can you imagine the connection these two precious women had as uh, what a relief that Elizabeth believed her? Mary probably felt so relieved. Oh, She says, what does she say to Mary? Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things that were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, was probably speaking to the very fear Mary had. Did that really happen? Did I dream it? What in the world? But something happened inside of me, and I'm pretty sure I'm pregnant, and oh my goodness, my life is going to be turned upside down. So joy is connected to the Holy Spirit, and joy is connected to authentic fellowship. Here's the thing. Mary was still the same unmarried virgin, still betrothed to Joseph, still the young woman she had been before uh, Gabriel's uh, visitation. Nothing changed. Well, everything changed. But she would need the courage and contagious joy and faith of Elizabeth. 
as well as Elizabeth's hospitality and acceptance. Mary was going to need that so desperately. The only two women in the world who would understand the need of this moment found solace in each other. Elizabeth shows no hint of judgment or side-eye, like, man, I hope I'm, I hope I'm on a good ride with you because this is crazy. She already had crazy going on in her own body. Like, she was all in. There was no side-eye, and she is delighted, rejoicing in Mary's acceptance of this ominous task and her obedience. Jan Richardson, who is an artist and an author, she wrote, quote, Mary found a refuge in Elizabeth. But Elizabeth must have found something of a refuge in her young cousin. There are few things more powerful than finding ourselves in a situation beyond our imagining and encountering someone who knows, someone who knows from the inside of it, something of what it is to be in that place, someone who can meet us there. Isn't that true? So very soothing and joy-inducing. The authentic relationship that is connected to joy. And joy is connected to gratitude. Mary then bursts into this scripture-filled rejoicing. And it's um, interesting because we think of it as a song. It's called the Magnificat. It's it's implied that she's singing, but it doesn't say that. The text just said, and then Mary said. But I imagine it was something that burst out of her because being accepted and not judged and given hospitality and being understood and affirmed for her obedience, that would scratch a deep itch, and I think her heart just blew open. And she... What she says is filled with so many scripture, scripture ideas. So you get the sense that Mary is an oak of righteousness, that she has immersed herself in the scriptures, and which you know not every young woman was able to do in that day. So let's look at Luke 1.46. Mary said, and I'm just going to read a part of it because it's a lengthy overflow of, of joy and, and prayer. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation." And she goes on and prophesies him. You know, um, back when, when Gabriel said to her, nothing will be impossible to God. Um, I think I skipped. Did you put that slide up and I just skipped it? Um, I like the, the original language in this because it says, um, no word from God shall be without power. If God says it, he will back it with his power to do it. Nothing will be impossible for God because literally no word from God shall be without power. So, 
And then he said, you know, even your, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. And no word from God will be without power to fulfill it. And that's an important undergirding of this tr- joy that just trusts. So Mary pours out her gratitude and worship in response to this calling. She could not predict how this was going to play out. Would Joseph even stay with her? And we know in Matthew that he struggled with the decision, and then he got a visitation from the angel. Gabriel was busy that season. Um, But she did know that the Mighty One had done great things for her, and his name is Holy and Merciful, And if he said it, he would back it up with the power to do it. So what's our problem? Why is it so hard for us to feel joy? To feel grounded in it, that calm delight, that deep down joy, or even the, uh, the, the abandonment of running and jumping into the arms of God. Why do we seem stuck in more negative, more depressive thoughts? And sometimes even talking ourselves out of joy. Well, you know, (laughs) waiting for the other shoe to drop. We do this, right? Well, the scientists talk about human beings having a negativity bias. We're very sticky for negative things and very slippery for positive things. So we're like Velcro for negativity and Teflon for positivity. Scientists call this our default state. Our default state is defensive, negative, uh, self-protecting, believing negative news over positive news, and I call this our sin nature. (laughs) It's like sometimes I think, hey, scientists, read your Bible. It's all in there. It's so good. Um, God was way ahead of you. And here's the interesting thing. We transfer negative experiences, a negative experience that happens to us, we transfer it to our long-term memory in about five seconds. It's almost just like an instinct. But a positive memory, I mean experience, for a positive experience to transfer into our long-term memory, it takes like 14 to 20 seconds. No wonder we hold on to the negative memories and the positive ones sort of slip through our fingers. I think this happened to Zacharias. I think he had a negativity bias response to Gabriel. Well, I can't understand it, so it can't be true. Can you tell me exactly how that's going to work? And Gabriel's like, seriously? He resisted the good news Gabriel brought, brought and held on to that, no way, no way can this be real. He would come around in those nine months of being silent and give the most tender blessing to his newborn son, John. It's so beautiful. And God will give him his voice back. But we're the same. When a negative experience happens, we have an almost instinct, uh, instant instinct to hold on to it. I think that as Christians, we have an advantage here. Because scripture is loaded with um, language on how to stay with something positive, how to talk about mercy, how to rejoice, how to, um, how to abandon ourselves to the goodness of God. 
The, the Psalms are filled with it. Old Testament um, patriarchs and matriarchs live this out. And so I think we have a little bit of an advantage in even the how-to of moving a positive experience from our experience to our long-term memory. The, the tools are modeled for us in Scripture, and being grateful in everything is actually commanded in the New Testament. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. For everything, give thanks in Ephesians. Like, oh, Lord, that's hard. Really hard. Because what I want to do is rehearse all the ways that I feel hurt and frustrated and nobody's listening and I feel invisible and that's what I, that's my instinct and that's your instinct too. Now some of us don't, some of us have, have a greater capacity for staying with, for being positive. Like my husband's the most optimistic person in the world. Um, And sometimes I'm like, hmm, yeah, but. And so he doesn't sometimes understand me, and sometimes I don't understand him because I have a more, what I consider realistic, he would say negative, (laughs) view of things, right? Uh, And we, we do have, we range on a scale with this stuff, but... When, when we're commanded in everything give thanks, it doesn't mean we're going to pretend that everything's fine. It means we're going to look at the situation and try to find something to give thanks for. And this leads us, when we do that, especially in the middle of difficult circumstances, this leads us to the heart of joy the grounding calm delight, the thriving and well-being, and maybe even the spinning around and leaping for for joy. Scientists suggest that staying with a positive experience and thinking about the goodness of it, rehearsing it in our mind, even speaking out loud about it, will imprint it, kind of take a mental snapshot of it, and relocate it into our long-term memory. Because what we think about matters. If we just rehearse the negative, we're going to get stuck there. But if we can see anything of the goodness of God in in our situation, we've got a chance of that imprinting on our long-term memory. This will give us a sense that God is for us even in the really hard things, like Elizabeth's barren womb and Mary's unwed pregnancy. We can still rejoice, still hold on to the kindness and grace of God, and still believe he is good and he is for us, even if our circumstances don't really change. And gratitude, I've said this before, but gratitude is powerful. The studies show that a daily gratitude practice of noting just three things a day that you're grateful for And really, you only have to do this five days a week. You don't have to do all seven. Um, That's the maximum, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You get the most result from a five-day gratitude practice, five days a week. Three things you're grateful for each day. This can increase joy. strength. This this is a scientific study from Cal Berkeley. Um, Strengthen the immune system. 
deepen relationships. People who have a gratitude practice live longer. They make more money at work. They sleep better. How interesting that what God commanded us to do is also actually really good for us. How kind of God. How kind of God. When God commands us to do it, in everything give thanks. Again, he's leading us into deeper joy. And I will close with this. Joy is bound up in the love of God. Joy is connected to the love of God, his very nature. When you read the Old Testament, I don't know, I think sometimes the the word on the street is, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's got problems. He's mad, he's got a temper, he's erratic. But then you read the Old Testament, and the commands are like, hey, bring your sacrifice into my presence with joy. Come joyfully and celebrate in my presence. Like, it is all over the law. And there's even this anointing oil of gladness. Like, God wants us to experience joy because he himself lives in joy. There's a praise offering, a thanks offering. His presence is a place of joy. In the Psalms, it says, um, there's fullness of joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. I just don't think we believe it. His love for his people is sparked with joy as his love is joy-filled. And I'm going to prove this point from Zephaniah 3. In Zephaniah 3, the prophet quotes God as he speaks of the darkness spiritually in his people and the religious leaders and... And it's a, it's a sad, dark time. There's a lot of hypocrisy. Like, oh, you're talking about loving me, but you don't really do it. It's all outward, and it's all fake. And God's like, I see that. And he, but he speaks of a small group who still love him and follow him and honor him. So in Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17... They're invited to rejoice and express joy because, let me see, where do I want to start that? Sing, O daughter of Zion, verse 14. Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. The Lord has taken away your judgments. Indeed, he has in Jesus. And he has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. In that day, you will, he, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion, do not let your hands fall in weakness. Verse 17, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Okay, let's just look at that. Let's, let's dissect this a little bit. The Lord your God in your midst, in your midst, right in the center in Hebrew. The language of the Old Testament is Hebrew. The language of the New Testament is Greek. The mighty one, right in the center, in your midst. He's mighty. The victorious one, the one who rescues, who liberates, who delivers. That's, what, that's who we're talking about. God, the mighty one, in your midst. 
He is mighty. And, and what, do we need, what do we need victory over? I mean, why do we need a victorious, what does it say? Uh, the mighty one. Why do we need this victorious warrior on our behalf? Because we need rescuing from the tyranny of selfishness and the bondage of harmful habits. And there's no one that's mighty enough for that task except the mighty one, of the, the God who is the mighty one, the victorious warrior on our behalf. He will rejoice over you with gladness. The idea in Hebrew is he will be joyful. He will express joy, delight, glee, even pleasure in you. He's, he loves you. God is delighted that he made you how you are. Is he want, does he want to change some stuff? Does he want to cleanse some stuff? Does he want to set you more free and me more free? Absolutely. But he's delighted in you. He will, quiet, he will be quiet in his love. Some translations say he will renew you in his love or he will rest you in his love. Um, it's an interesting phrase because it's kind of hard to translate. There are two parts of this. There's the actual be quiet. So maybe there's silence. Like there's a a loving, calm silence. Or another part of this word in Hebrew is to engrave upon a tablet. And I wonder, I didn't read this in a commentary, so maybe it's crazy. But I wonder if it's both and. Like he's engraving his love upon our hearts. He's showing us his delight. He's giving us a glimpse into what, it, what it's like when he rejoices over us, when he's in our midst, the mighty one who will save. And then he will exult over you. Okay, exult is not a word we use in 2023. We don't, I would never go up to you and go, I've exulted over you today. But it means to dance or spin or just have an embodied experience of joy because of someone else or over their lives, wanting that for them. He will exult over you with loud singing, shouts of joy, ringing cries of joy. Is this how you imagine God? To be filled with joy and filled with joy toward you, over you, as he's rescuing you from yourself? Saving me from myself. So here's, what I'm here's my last point here, is that God's love is a joyful love. That it pours from him for his own, for us. It's a joyful, healing love because he is love. He is joy. He is peace. Like, he's not, he doesn't just, he's not just loving, he's love. He's not just joyful, he's joy. He's not just peaceful, he's peace. He's the source of these things. So God's love is a joyful love pouring from him for us. It's a joyful healing love as Zacharias and Elizabeth experienced. It's a joyful grace-filled love as Mary participated in. It's a jump for joy kind of uh, love like the shepherds felt. 
It's a guiding joy that motivated the wise men to keep on going to find the baby king. When Jesus, the one who comes as salvation and rescue itself, was born, it was a joy-filled occasion because God delights to bring rescue to the world. So all you can say is like, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart, mine and yours, prepare him room and let heaven and nature sing. Yeah. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you that you were willing to be made small. You left the glory of heaven and the joy of relationship in the Godhead, that perfect love and unity and joy you shared amongst yourself. To become a baby, to fit in a womb, to be born through a birth canal that you designed, to live in a world that would not get you, not understand you, to bring our rescue, to release us from our selfishness and our weak, frail attempts at living. Thank you that you joy over us with singing, Thank you that you are the mighty one. Thank you that joy is rooted in, 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 I mean, that grace is rooted in joy. Lord, would you help us to, to stay with the, with the good things this season, long enough for them to imprint on our long-term memory? And help us think about what we're thinking about so we can redirect our minds to a more joyful place, even in the midst of the really hard things that happen to us. Lord, bless your people. You know what every single person in this room and watching online, you know exactly what they need. You know those areas that ache. Like Paul said, our hearts ache and we still have joy. Would you please... Be a soothing balm to your people today and lead us into greater joy for your glory, for our good, and so the light of the world shines brighter. In your beautiful name, Jesus, amen.